Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, one of the most noteworthy figures to emerge from the downtown New York rock scene in the last 30 years. First, as the frontman of the band Degeneration, then as a celebrated solo artist. On August 30th, 30th he will release his latest album, Sunset Kids. Hello and welcome, Jesse Malin. Hey, hey, Mike, how hey, you doing? Great. Almost stuck the landing there. Very, very close. Uh, it's nice to meet you properly. I've been following you for... Those decades I just mentioned. Wow. <laughs> I was in a while. In, it goes fast. I was in on the ground floor. I, I mailed away for the D-Generation 7 Inches. Wow, that's amazing. Um, the 7 Inches were before we even had a major label money. It was just like a, those fast things you did. I think one was on Sympathy for the Record Industry, and one was on a label, Gasatanka, which was uh, through, uh, it was a joke about Casablanca Records to a guy sure. from White Flag, but I don't know. It, it was fun. I like getting those little 7 Inches. That's almost the funnest part of this. It was already a little late to be making seven inches. It was a little bit of a, of yeah. a statement. Well, they've come back, right? So they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was during the, the dry years for, for vinyl. And I was really immersed in the glam metal scene that was still clinging on by its painted fingernails at that point. And I remember talking to people who were very threatened by degeneration. They're <laughs> like, we, we officially uh, probably need to just get into construction full time. Yeah. Because well, if these guys are getting signed, we're done. It's love or hate at that point. We were going to get people really love that band or they really they want to throw uh, bottles at us. Really? Did you get a lot of that? Sometimes. What was not to like? Yeah, I think when we went to other places like in middle America, uh, like we were big in major cities and things mm. like that. But when we'd go out there, I think it was just a weird time. People were still dressed up grungy and like farmers and gas station attendants. And I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it was an interesting seven years, but we, we got to do a lot of fun things. So. Yeah, it was a good run. And I know you've you know reunited here and there over the years more recently and of course there's the solo career that we're here to talk to you about today i have to ask over the years you have been a magnet for so many high profile collaborators what is it that makes legendary people want to work with you oh i don't know i make a good pancake i guess you know <laughs> bisquick i think is the remedy if you i make such a good no i think that you know I've connected with a lot of different people. I mean, there's been people that I work with that are names and, you know, singers in their own right, but also great people that aren't that have just been, you know, they're just not as known like that. Um, a lot of the musician people, like we've just met musician to musician on a tour or something. Sometimes it's come to me. I've been really lucky where I, I don't know why, like I said, like maybe it's the pancakes, but, you know, where I've gotten these phone calls and people are like, it's like, hey, you know, you want to do something, and and it's just uh, it's been an interesting thing, I guess. I don't know what the label would be for the artist, the artist, or something. But uh, you learn something. I think people that have made records that are other artists, they they've picked up a lot of stuff from doing this for so long that they can impart that, and and sometimes it's fun for them to step out of their world and produce somebody else. Uh, as it's been, you know, so, but, you know, yeah, even like Rick Okasik did Degeneration record. He was in mm -hmm. the cars and he had been producing for a while, did the Weezer records. And, yeah, sure. And uh, in Bad Brains and all kinds of stuff, Bad Religion. So 
he he was like somebody where you you know you had a person who was really knew how to make the record and get that thing to land in two weeks we made it like a very punk style for Columbia Records. The second but, album was recorded that quickly. Yeah, with oh, him well, it was. Yeah. But I think he also knew the battles that like an artist goes through as far as keeping boundaries from the record company, especially in those days, and protecting the artists and the art from the the company who's paying the bills. So, you know, someone that had been on that side, been in a band and, and fought the battles against, you know, the, the, the heads and all. So there's something in that. And I think, um, also understanding the band dynamics. Sometimes an artist can understand where things get a little funny. There's egos and stuff like that. And some producers just come in, fire the drummer. And, you know, I think, uh, a, another musician kind of has a sensitivity to, to a band dynamic. Yeah. So. There's, um, it's funny because they say that most bands end up having like a John, a Paul, a Ringo, and a George, and it's not exactly that simple, but it's sort of if you've been in a band, you yeah. probably understand how you can walk into a band room and understand it in a way that somebody who had not been in a successful band probably ever ever would. Yeah, it's true. I mean, someone has to steer the ship, and you know, obviously there's a lot of egos involved, and when I went solo, it was something very scary about it being under my name and not being able to have my gang behind me and all that. But there was something liberating about being able to sing and talk about anything personal and get as personal as I want. And not when I was writing, be conscious of, oh, this cell, can I, can the four other guys you know, stand by this and stand next to me? So uh, there's a vulnerability and an honesty, and I guess almost as I joke, putting my couch my therapist couch being the record up there and just and the first record fine art of self-destruction was kind of really freeing like that to be able to do that and uh yeah let me ask you about going solo because i recall like i said i followed uh dj and i bought the first album got the second album and then i remember one night with brian cullen who we know in co in common it was like that dead week that happens between Christmas and New Year's when everybody leaves the East Village because it's kind of like a college campus. A lot yeah. of people are young and they go home to their family's house. I remember walking down St. Mark's and seeing a handwritten sign outside of Coney Island High, your bar, saying yeah. Jesse Malin solo. And we're like, well, let's check this out. And it was, I think it was the very, very early stages of you doing that. You definitely had not released any solo right. stuff yet. And it was just you and a guitar. At that point in time, do you remember that era? What was your plan as Degen is reaching its end as a major label artist. What plan, if any, did you have? Well, we were on the road with all these great big bands. I mean, the punk thing now is finally kind of breaking in, in a level with Offspring and Green Day and Rancid and Social D, and all these bands are getting the credit that they definitely do were due. And and the crowds were, were we were out on the road with these bands, and and mostly it was all about the mosh pit and how fast these people could dance to our set and how fast we could play. And I could have been singing the phone book or the back of a cereal box or whatever; it didn't matter. And so I really you know, didn't think of our band as just about hair and shoes and penis and tits and cars. It was, you know, we were maybe political, but socially conscious lyrics that mattered to me. Songs have always mattered to me. And nobody was really caring about what we were singing about. They're talking about the shoes and the beers and whatever. And so I was craving other things. I'd be on the tour bus listening to, you know, at that time, again, singer songwriters came in again or whatever artists like Wilco and Pete Yorn and uh, obviously Ryan's Whiskey Town was a thing we had met on a degeneration tour in North Carolina. So I was listening and going back to my roots of like Neil Young's or all these stuff, Elvis Costello, Billy Bragg and and Bruce Springsteen, which, you know, for years when I was younger, 
grew up near New Jersey in New York. I didn't relate to it till I heard Nebraska, which is an acoustic record. So the idea of stripping it back down was really starting to sound appealing to me. And even on the last Degeneration album, Through the Darkness, there's a Neil Young cover. There's a ballad to, you know, a girl. Like, it's it's starting the, the little bit of writing on the wall. So then I had to go back to the to the bottom of it, you know, and go out alone after Degeneration could pack rooms out, sell out, and, and had uh, backing and tour buses and management to, you know, put up a handwritten sign on St. Mark's Place Christmas week and going right to the place where you got to go. But I wanted to bring it down to a whisper. So those early shows were either me alone or me and a piano player to make people come in. And when we made yeah, the it was first definitely down, just you that I saw. Yeah. And that was the idea to, to try to, you know, focus it on, on the songs and, and that. And I'm really grateful that I would have a second chance at it and actually a third because when I was a little kid, I had a hardcore band called Heart Attack that right. was out for... I did that for about four four years. It seemed very long when you're 12 to 16, but uh, we put out a few records and toured the States and stuff. So, you did? Yeah, we, we put out three uh, three EPs, and uh, we toured with bands like GBH and Social Distortion and Dead Kennedys and Bad Brains. And um, The first single came out when I was 14. It's called God is Dead. It was a, an EP. I was very politically... Uh, I was reading Nietzsche. I didn't even know who he was. But um, Yeah, that's about the age that you pretend you understand Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah. I just had these ideas, and yeah, I was just yeah yelling stuff. I was angry at the world. <laughs> but um, but it was fun, and by the time I was 16, the hardcore scene in New York was really starting to blow up. Yeah, sure. But I felt it became too macho and too metal, and those were the two things I was trying to avoid back in Queens when I left Queens to go to the city was the knucklehead element. And uh, as much as uh, hardcore was very intelligent and very um, you know original for what it was as a, as a small tribal culture, it actually started to get into this way where I thought it was getting like a big football match or something. So I stopped that, and there was a downtime between Heart Attack, and I had another band called Hope, which was never got recorded, but similar to what I do now, like songwriter type of bananas. And then Degeneration came with five guys that grew up together in Queens that loved the same stuff, and the idea was we'd make a band, would be the band we'd want to see if we were little kids. And it was in this time where it was a lot of funky shorts and, you know, uh, bands like with socks on their penises, and, you know, you had uh, a lot of grunge type of stuff, and we wanted something that was real stylish. The bands we liked looked like gangs and you know, look like, you know, they were, they're really a thing. And, and we had that, that chemistry. So whatever we didn't have to, to become the hugest band in the world, whatever the, whether it was bad deals or our internal thing, but we had something that, that, uh, was very valuable. So that's why we've even revisited it over the years and done reunions and records and stuff too. That was, um, uh, uh the vibe of the band, which is a very specific thing. It was a retro thing, even in its time, that was something everybody was on board with. It's funny. It's great serendipitous yeah. that you find five guys in Queens who were all like there was a 1970s rock thing that's worth kind of revisiting not simply that yeah that's the core of it and we had read about all this decadent stuff and all these clubs and all this and you know we'd had the war on sex and the war on drugs and all this fear and so we would uh just try to create that environment wherever we went and uh it was fun for a while but going out alone, you know, it's a different thing. But I always try to put together a band. And it's always for me about, I don't just have like session people. Like I've played with the same people for about six, seven years now, maybe more in, in my group. And uh, it's tough to keep a band together when you're a solo artist and you're not on a, you know, major Mellencamp level of retainers and all that. But uh, that gang, that core circle of having people that, that you have something with is very important to me in the records and, of course, live. So. I want to talk to you about, you know, I want to, as I mentioned, um, you know, there's 
there have been so many high-profile collaborators. I want to use them as a, a framework to talk about your own work, and you, you yourself mentioned the things that you take from these people. So let's talk about some of the people that you've worked with and specifically how what how working with them has informed what it is that you do and how what you do has evolved. So okay. Lucinda Williams is on the most recent album. If there's one thing that you think you, you take from uh, you know her approach, whether it's the nuts and bolts of making music or, or more of a spiritual, artistic thing, what did well, you learn? you know, she has a certain freedom about her as an artist. I was a fan first, and uh, we became friends. I love her writing. I love her voice. You sort of willed this to happen. It's uh, like a, this is like a secret. Um, maybe there's a secret in that. We were, my manager said, you know, you got to think of somebody to do this record that would be interesting. And we had just did a piece with a, a, a journalist, Sarah Rodman, at Rolling Stone. And uh, that's her name, right? And uh, she, she's great. I saw her the other night. She did this piece where it was artist-to-artist interview. And in the interview, me and Lucinda chatted and went back and forth. And so it's this Rolling Stone thing. And then the journalist Sarah says, well, how about a, would there ever be a collaboration? So that planted the seed in our heads, or at least in my head. And then we were invited to come out to Los Angeles to uh, Lucinda said, I'm opening for Tom Petty three nights at the Hollywood Bowl. And so I said to my manager, you want to go? You know, this sounds like a beautiful thing. Lucinda's going to play an hour. It was the last night of the Heartbreakers Tom Petty tour. So we came out and I said, maybe we'll talk to her about producing the record. You know, as a new manager, this this manager, Michael, that I have. And he's like, yeah, I want this one to be really honest and back to like, you know, really quiet songs. And, and we're going to work so hard, make you write like crazy which he did. And I said, what about that idea? So he liked it. So we went out, we saw Tom Petty and we saw Lucinda. It was an amazing night. Both of them were great under this beautiful sky and long that we didn't know it would be the last Tom Petty show ever. And, and it just was such a special one to, to have witnessed. The next night we went out and had dinner with Lucinda and um, her manager was her husband, Tom Overby also has produced her records and been very involved and was very involved in this record as a producer as well. We just talked about doing it and uh, they seemed pretty open. And I said, well, let me send you the music first. So I sent them some music and uh, you know, they, responded but then after tom petty had passed in the vegas shootings it was everybody needed to kind of take a breath um and we decided to come out to los angeles in december around christmas time one of the things that me and lucinda shared was the idea of you know working through the holiday blues and our families might be small or you know in the past in a lot of ways or just needing to work through that so we said yeah we'll work through christmas and we also shared something besides we actually share a birthday, which is funny, but um, it, it's been a nice thing. We had been friends all these years. Uh, I had officially met her in a jazz club, uh, the Blue Note in New York, like um, sure. in the early 2000s. But then when we'd be in each other's towns or on the road, we'd end up talking about music. And, and she had come to one of my shows in L.A. And I think this journalist saw her writing on the bar like she's like, it's my desk during my set. Like, I guess she was inspired. So there was this energy building. And, um, you know, we just kind of thought, well, all right, we'll come and we'll do this in L.A. where she had worked. And coincidentally enough, a guy named David Bianco had a studio. He did her last three records and he had did Tom Petty Wildflowers and Danzig and Frank Black and a zillion other great records. And he was a great guy. He had also been the first guy to take Degeneration in a studio when we were in our 20s and go to Electric Lady Studios and make our first major label album. So there was this full circle family thing. So we went to Dave's room and we spent the Christmas week and uh, we put our toe in the water and everyone was really happy and the vibes were really good. So we decided to, to go forward. It seems like there'd be a lot of pressure in that situation. You know, you mentioned your manager telling you kind of 
right harder. <laughs> and and it doesn't necessarily work that way. We all know that you, you have to, uh, I remember Johnny Marr saying he hangs out in recording studios all the time because he's like, you're, you're never going to write a song at the bar. Right. You know, and, and maybe you could, but you know, the point stands, you, you need to be around the muse to try to hope the muse comes down. But if you say, I'm going to hang out with this person who, you know, is, is legendary in their own right. And let's write some stuff. Like what if you just don't have any terrific ideas that day or well, the next I think day. you need something to come in with and yeah. once you have something I think it builds up the confidence when you're dry and you have writer's block you feel like how did I ever do this and the best thing I ever read is that other people that I respected like Lou Reed to anybody had been there and it, it, that the, the levy will break and you know you will get the flow but I had a bunch of songs mm-hmm. and then when somebody says oh these are good or I like these or you get that confidence you know if someone says you're good then you can feel like you're good you get that but my first day I she lives over here in Studio City. I went to her house with the acoustic guitar and before we went in the studio and a notebook full of, you know, seven verses to the first song I brought her. It was called Room 13. And to sit around a kitchen table is a very open place to, you know, talk about songs. And, and I was nervous. And, you know, beyond it was a friend, but like, you know, she's this great, you know, literary, just great lyricist. And, and so here we went through this song and I had six or seven verses. And by the next day she had narrowed it down to three and started adding a couple of words and details of things that um that made the song you know even better and that's that was one of the reasons you know to be able to put that bar in front of me and go all right well I'm working with somebody who's at this level so I got to up my game and it made me you know want to work a lot harder I think there's also a thing of knowing when there's someone listening when you make your first record you're not aware you have an audience and then when you know you have an audience it can be scary but it also can be like all right people are listening or sometimes you're just writing to a girl or a guy or somebody that you know your parents or some message and when you know that there's like you know something very pointed coming it 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 can be like all right this is gonna has a purpose you know even if it's one person i'm gonna get this through but um she was great and we sat around this kitchen table and her husband tom was throwing in lines and we just kind of put this song together and was like oh we can do this together and 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 uh it's actually one of my favorite songs on the record so yeah and ended up being the the first single. the first single yeah yeah um, so speaking of rewriting, this is a, a real nerdy thing I want to ask you, but I've always wondered. You mentioned working with, uh, with Rico Kasich. Uh, the song Waiting for the Next Big Parade underwent a change from the D-Gen 7 Inches and first album to the to the second album. You flipped the, the chorus pre-chorus and the pre-chorus. And the that was a Rico Kasich idea. It was a good idea. Yeah. I like right. I like it both. Do you prefer well, it the original I remember one? the band and being a little bit uncertain. I think uh, Richard Backus, the guitarist, and Howie Pyro, I have a writing credit on it. I did some, but they did the, the chunk of the writing, and, and that was like one of those things. Is it better or is it this? But it's like if you ask somebody to produce a record and you sign on, you might win a few fights that you don't agree with, but sometimes you have to step back and go, mm-hmm. well, I asked this guy to do it. If yeah, I didn't right. want them, I could have did it myself. But at the time, the label wanted a producer because because we were just a bunch of crazy babies, and and we figured Rick Ocasek had worked with the Bad Brains, so if he could deal with them, and they're amazing but intense, yeah. So, but <laughs> yeah, yeah to, we did switch that. Um, you got to be open to to hearing what stuff is. I, I think that you know the best producers were like, well, in the end, you can change it, but some others have been like, it's my way or the Long Island Expressway, you know. So, um, and that was Rick's idea with with that arrangement, pretty much. The first Degeneration album, the one that David Bianco did, um, the record press president was fired and the A&R person had left and it was a record that was dropped and we were dropped from the label and meanwhile we were on the radio in New York there was a rock station Q104 playing it 35 times a week and yeah. we were a full page thing in Rolling Stone from David Frick and then 
the head of the new label, it was somebody else's baby. They just dropped us. So I thought I'd be selling shoes on St. Mark's Place or, you know, like records in the back of a basement or something. But uh, sure enough, there was just another uh, bunch of articles and the fans and the, and the people, and we've got another record deal. And so we wanted to record those songs. Some of them, again, we felt that they hadn't been really heard and reached, so there were re- sure. repeats. But um, both records are, are different. David Bianco did a, a nice job, and then Rico Kasich took his stab at it. It almost just shows you what a producer really does to listen to the two versions of the two True. songs. They're both totally faithful to the compositions, but they're both totally yeah. different, you know? And a good producer, you know, a lot of ways is an editor. You know, in some ways, you know, I've had producers tell me, like, well, that's a B-side. And I'm like, I love that song. <laughs> it's got the saxophone and the Tom Waits whip. And then and suddenly, years later, I'm like, yeah, Ryan, you were right. That was a B-side. But you know, they're your kids, these songs, and you love them all equally when yeah. they're new, and you're like, you can't always see the forest and the trees when it's a brand new song. Look at this, I just wrote it. It's, it's got that line about, you know, Third Avenue. And <laughs> um, Tell me, where along the line did you become acquainted with Billy Joe Armstrong? Uh, Billy Joe and I met, well, I guess the first time I saw Green Day was out here in California at the Palladium. Uh, Joe Sib, a buddy of mine, was singing in a band called Wax. I and, love Wax. Oh, great. Yeah, <laughs> I I'm, do friendly too. With, I'm friendly with Loomis, their drummer. Oh, Loomis yeah. is a character. He's a, he is a character, yeah. Yeah, jackass show guy. But yeah, he's amazing. So um, Joe took me to see them. He said, you got to see this band open for Bad Religion. They were a trio, and the songs were just so poppy and so strong, and the place flipped out, and I was like, this band's going somewhere. And I got back to New York, and we used to sit around a bar on Sunday nights to watch watch Matt Pinfield or I forget who came after 120 minutes and watch, you know, on MTV, the Sunday night alternative videos and uh, dream of our video being on there or whatever. And one day we saw the Green Day, you know, Longview and he's cutting up the couch and it just reminded us of like Dead Boys and Buzzcocks and all that stuff we like. So I was kind of a fan. And then we were on tour with D-Generation. We went to open up for Social Distortion across America and we we're in San Francisco in the Bay Area and I got off stage and this guy comes over to me and wants to talk about songs on no lunch like lyrics and uh, you know i'm always a a fool for someone who wants to talk about songs and get into that geek out it was billy joe and he was great we had this little exchange and i told the rest of my band i met the green day guy he's cool you know um about two three months later or maybe that was maybe about eight months a bit a piece of time we got a call from a manager you want to go out with green day it was the nimrod tour so we did six weeks in america they were, you know, these guys that were millionaires and had all this. They treated us like gold. We had been out with bands like Kiss where, don't look at me and don't touch. Like, they're very protective. I got arrested when we opened for them at the Garden because they threw us out of the dressing rooms and I had a beer and, it, you know, it was like, Giuliani, open container, rolling rock. And, you know, waited my whole <laughs> life to, to play the Garden and now I'm in the tombs downtown and I, was, I had my laminate with Gene on it in my face. But these guys were like, come in our dressing room, you know, play the drums with your penis on stage, eat, eat our food, use our equipment. Like they just shared everything, and we had a lot of fun. The last night of the tour was at the Fillmore, and they said, We want to ask you something. It was right before Christmas, it was like a Christmas gift. You guys want to come to us with six weeks to Europe next year? We were like, What? I'd never been over the pond, so we did that. Started in Ireland, did six weeks with them there, and after that, we just had a friendship. They'd come to New York, their road crew, our road crew. We would drink and hang out in New York, and and time would go on. And um, I guess I ended up signing. I sent Billy Joe some demos after I did my first two records, but for what would be Glitter in the Gutter, and they offered me a deal to be on Adeline. This is around the American Idiot time, and I came out here and lived here for a while, and and recorded. Uh, 
behind this clown, Circus Liquors, down there in the alley that's been in every movie, that big clown. It was a studio down the road. Sure. And, Guns um, N' Roses just live up there, I think. Oh, yeah. And uh, we did that record for them, and they were just great. Them, And, and then um, after that, you know, more shenanigans, as they say, more goofing around in New York and this and that. We did a side project. Uh, you know, Billy would come sometimes and jam on stage with us, but we one night were together, and we did a drunken 5 a.m. side project called Rodeo Queens, where went in the studio, me, Mike, Trey, and Billy, and just uh, tracked some song, like, out of our minds. And then they left it for me to finish the rest of the words, and they went on their merry way. So I finished the song, and I sent it to them, and it came out, and it got some airplay, and and, and Rodeo Queens, the name came because they're from Rodeo, California. I'm from Queens, New York. There you go. And the song was Depression Times, and uh, it became coolest song on uh, Little Steven Underground Garage. And so we were always trying to get a B-side for that in between our crazy lives and uh i would open up for green day here and there on some shows and you know the friendship was just a fun thing we would jam ramones covers at parties and you know whatever dead boys and then uh i had this song and i sent it to billy and i was like i got this thing for b-side of uh for depression times for rodeo queens and he's like i really like it yeah i said why don't you write the lyrics i wrote the music on the last um, this time you write the lyrics this time so he did we walked around new york one day and i just showed him all the old hardcore places we hung out at and walked in on like a weird sunday just reminiscing and then he went back to the bay area and i got a text with the whole song written out all the lyrics boom right there so i went in and i sang it and then he sang on it. We sent it to him out in, uh, in up by Oakland and sent it back. And we're in a studio doing this while I'm doing the record with Lucinda and her husband, Tom. And then they were both like, this song, no, it's got to be on your record. And everybody in the studio was like, we should put this on this album. So I asked Billy, and he was like, you know, I'm cool. Whatever you want to do, I like the song. And so that's how the uh, Strangers and Thieves, and I think lyrically, it's a lot about my experience and his experience being parallel on different coasts, but coming be feeling like an outsider in like some middle-class neighborhood and connecting with all these people that are really searching for something to, to make their lives better, but we're all damaged in some way, but the music kind of heals that or whatever sometimes. <laughs> I have two questions I want to ask you equally uh, as a follow-up to that. Let me start with this one. I, I, I love talking about songs and songwriting as well. Just tell me anything I wouldn't guess about Billy Joe's process or anything that you've noticed that he does that you don't think every other songwriter does? Ooh, I don't know. He, You know, I haven't been around him so much when yeah. he does stuff, but I could tell he's a deep thinker. You know, he's taking a lot of stuff in. He's quiet and retaining things, being, you know, very aware of his environment. I've noticed this when I've been around Bruce Springsteen and stuff. Sometimes they don't say a lot, but, you know, a few days later, you find that they were really listening or watching. If you mentioned some song or some reference, and then it's all there. But I think he was able to walk around with me and then go back to his place. And I, I don't know what, what inspired it, but when I was in the studio with them doing the first thing, uh, the Depression Times with Rodeo Queens, I noticed we were writing out because we were so out of it, and they had, they took out a Sharpie, and for each part that we created musically, it had a comparison, like it said Stooges, Clash, like each part, each section, so we could remember, we're going into the Stooges section. But um, I know he's a super hard worker, and, and as a singer, the guy... You know, I guess he's been singing since he was a little kid, just comes in and just nails it. And it's that distinct voice. And he has a great sense of harmony and just a, a real a feeling of, of, of strength like that really just comes out of confidence in there and a power. And, and, and that really fits, I think, for strong rock or punk rock music. 
But as a writer, you know, we kind of did this on our own. And just suddenly I, we walked around and here comes the lyrics in a text. Boom. They're, they're all there and very like, this is it. You know, what do you think? And I, and, uh, I write in different ways. My process might be, you know, sometimes I get a whole song in one shot. Sometimes I'm writing on bar napkins and stuffing things in my pocket or talking into my iPhone. And I have notebooks and I have, uh, used to have cassettes. Now I have voice notes. Don't lose that phone. And the music, you know, sometimes being in certain environments, walking around strange cities in New York, in my neighborhood, I know so many people. So it's like, you know, cheers. It's like you want to go somewhere where you're watching the world as a movie as opposed to starring in it and getting slapped on the back. Hey, Jesse, you know, handshakes. It's like I like to walk when we go on tour. I like to come in from the street and walk into a sound check and just pick up the guitar. And sometimes stuff just comes because the way you hear yourself through the PA system, through the walls, through the sounds of that particular venue might be different. Or maybe the sound guy has a little different verb. And sometimes it just plays a trick on myself to make it seem different. I think it's why people use different tunings and capos because, you know, if you just keep hitting that same E chord in your house on that yeah. same guitar, and you know, you might write the same song or get nothing. But having these things that inspire, um, I also believe uh, somebody once said, no, input no output you know you need to be hearing other music and and seeing shows and reading and movies or you know i mean life gives you a lot of inspiration i hear people's conversations and bits and i i I collect them so when i'm in a jam i can go to that notebook and there's this line that might fit this song if if i'm still looking to dot my i's and cross my t's you know i know you've crossed paths with uh peter buck from rem you mentioned the different tunings i love this anecdote that when they made uh when rem made out of time they all learned a different instrument and i know i said this on the show recently but i'll repeat it um that he learned the mandolin people know that you know that's all over that album and he said one of the great things about it was it's all different tunings and he'd come up with something and go guys listen to this thing i made up and it's a g chord yeah. But he doesn't know it's a G you don't chord because he's cause in this weird tuning. That's exactly how it is. It's a trick on your mind. And you can you fall in love it. with it all over again. And someone's like, yeah, that was G. You could have just wrote that <laughs> with those three figures. Yeah. But no, on a mandolin, it, it and, you know, melody, uh, I think Jeff Tweedy said that, you know, he's ruled by the melody as the ruler. And everybody's different. I mean, you look at Bernie Taupin wrote these lyrics and gave Nelton John. and But when I was a kid, I did notice I was a big Elton John fan that these songs were, were just, I loved them before I even knew the words. I mean, you're a kid, you make up the words sometimes. And yeah. Yell- Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is a very angry, pointed song about being a kept man. I mean, who's going to know what a kept man is at five years old, but I love the song. And so if it's good, a great song I feel could work with us singing the back of the barf bag. But then if you find out the words and they're even better, then you're like, wow, you know, it's like this is a whole nother level. And I had that with The Clash and The Stones, and sometimes you couldn't always understand every word. And then when you get the lyric sheet, like there's a Clash lyric in uh, Safe European Home. He says, went to the place where every white face is an invitation to robbery. Um, you know, I didn't know he, the way he sang robbery, robbery. Like it just, you didn't know what he was saying. When you read it, you're like, wow, this is like, they went to Jamaica and they got shook down. And like, this is, this is, you know, the race issues and whatever. So, um, everybody's got a different process. And I guess, you know, writing's very personal for me. And I always say, you know, it's like masturbating. You've got to find a moment when there's nobody around. And, and then when you're ready to show it to the world and go, hey, look at this, then taking it on stage. And I think, you know, with a new record coming out, I'm excited to sing these songs in public and getting up. It's almost like what people do, I assume, at these AA meetings. Like, hey, I'm Jesse and I'm an addict. Like, you know, saying it in front of a, a jury of your peers, you know, and seeing if it reverberates back as honest and um, hot lights and a sweaty night and a spitty microphone sometimes, you know, works in a dark room. Um, how often do you feel like you've been 
you've been wrong. You mentioned when you uh, you write something and you think it's the hit, but you know it's really the B side. So you're going to get up and and play a whole a whole album's worth of stuff at some point or another in your upcoming tour. How how will you come home thinking all twelve or thirteen songs were all as good as you you left thinking, or will you go, oh man, three of those weren't quite as good, and I couldn't really find that out until I got in front of the that people. That definitely happens. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes we try to play the stuff, the road test, you know, before you record. But this record that we did with you know with Lucinda and everybody, we were. Um, you know, a lot of it was written in the studio or written, you know, just before they'd go on breaks to tour or I'd be busy touring and we'd get back together and I'd have like three or four more songs. I came from that place where I had an A&R guy in the nineties. Like you just keep writing until the doors closed. And even my manager now was like, all right, you have one song before we connected on this album with everybody. He's like, you got this one song, Tall Black Horses, it was called. Now give me 10 more of those and we're done. Now I wrote and wrote and Michael, my manager, would come over to my house every three weeks and sit in the kitchen and hear what we got. And he'd say, all right, then we got three more out of like six, you know, and he was kind of A&Ring it a bit in the early days of the record. Um, but the song that was the top of the bar didn't even make the record. Like it's still to me a song I really love, but like we went to another place with that. And uh, so, um, you know, you playing live, there is that thing. And, and there's a funny thing I say, you know, in LA when I've made records and you're listening to mixes, you go out to the car in the parking lot right. and you do the car test. In New York, I like to do the bar test and you go in, there's other people around, you come in around 3 a.m. and, you know, used to ask somebody that had a bar or I'm involved in one spot, but like, can we put this on? And, you know, and there's people around and there's a De Niro movie, King of Comedy, where he uh, kidnaps Jerry Lewis, uh, who's a talk show host, like a letterman kind of jimmy fallon guy and he kidnaps him and then he's going to go to jail but he puts himself first on the tv before they catch uh, de niro and so when it runs on the tv of him hosting the show while the kidnapped uh, jerry lewis there he wants to see it before he goes to jail before he turns in the information where he's kidnapped this guy so i got to go in a bar and i got to see this in front right. of people and then he can't believe he's in the bar and they're running it and it's this criminal that just kidnapped the host is uh you know he's watching himself up there in front of people and then he goes to jail but uh you know what does he say it's better to be uh, king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll buy that. Oh, speaking of De Niro, you were involved with a Scorsese movie at some point? Uh, bringing Out the Dead. Yeah, I had a small part. I, I don't know, last night someone was asking, I just said, you know, I'm a movie buff. I'm a freak of all those 70s films. And sure. I just said it to my girlfriend at the time, like, I want to be in a movie. I didn't even say Scorsese. I was like, whatever. And next couple days, this manifest, as I said this, got asked to come and read for what would be Bringing Out the Dead. And that led to a small, tiny part. But I have one line. It was kind of funny. But um, it was great to work with him, and the guy just like talks about music all day and just. Oh, know. he does. Yeah, Nicholas Cage, Ving Rhames were in the film, and uh, Paul Simon's son, Harper Simon. But it wasn't a big acting stretch for me because I was the doorman at CBGB. So I was, you know, I brought the, the EMS guys to the kid who OD'd on the stage. I think I had one line right this way. Which my father, rest in peace, would always think it was walk this way. He knew it wasn't, but he teased me because you know Mel Brooks puts that in every movie, right? <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but Marty was was great. And I just saw him recently at a at a show at the Carlisle Hotel, and he was uh, he's like, I remember, and I was like, How does this guy remember? He's seventy six, but yet we were still talking about Bad Brain songs with a guy who was older than my dad. Like he's like, Pay well, he to can... come is the best. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, wow. if you look at those soundtracks, they're made by somebody that just has so much love for music. And, yeah, I, did, I didn't see them as somebody who had love for the Bad Brains, though. That's After Hours, uh, film in the early 80s. Yeah, you're right, the yeah, comedy. The, the, yeah. the, the punk scene there, he doesn't just put any punk song. He puts the best hardcore song, in my opinion. I was like, you know. 
I really uh, uh, appreciate it. Speaking of CBGBs, how it, you and Degeneration and just you have brought back a New York that, like, when I was a musician coming up, we all heard about the '70s, and I was into you know Dead Boys and 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 CBGBs and all that. And I know that you experienced a little bit of what I did, which is the dark years where it's all pay to play and you you can't get into places. And you talked about Degeneration wanting to sort of manifest a, a sort of a, a, a bygone thing, a vibe. And I feel like you managed to do that successfully. That's actually one of your legacies is you and the projects you've been associated with brought back or helped bring back the New York that a lot of us were looking for in the late 80s and, and 90s when that really dried up. CBGBs, a lot of us got to play there. We get to say I was on stage at CBGBs, but it wasn't really that cool for a well, lot of people stopped going there they stopped booking they stopped being competitive they were just selling t-shirts they could have just had a turnstile to put you know money in for tourists to look at the place but nobody was actively so then when they closed everybody was so sad they did those final shows but like when it was open it's like a bar in new york called manitoba's closed now everybody's like sure. so sad but they never supported it for 15 years um yeah i mean new york is is synonymous with for me certain types of rock and roll i mean if you think of how many times the rolling stones say new york city in, a, in how many songs I can't even imagine it. I once tried to figure that out when Jagger says New York City it always sounds cool so um, now you know people are moving to Brooklyn and Queens and all these places that I couldn't wait to get out of as a kid so right. I'm still in downtown New York New York which is I still see as a city of energy you walk out your door and life just happens I, I still call it a Santa Claus town that people come there for dreams and maybe they're a little more expensive and it used to be easier to like live in a tiny storefront for $300 and be an artist and I understand why kids have had to move, but um, you know, to me, there's still that thing of just all people that you, from all over the world. You just walk out your door and you're in it. You're in action, and I think that affects the music. And I like that in other cities, London and Chicago, and even I walk in L.A. and you know, I've been cars have honked at me and looked at me like they were interested in something I wasn't selling. But <laughs> well, um, you're the guy who's walking here. Yeah, I was that guy, the one guy. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, for me, it's just really bringing back, you know, connecting to music. But what I got from early hardcore was a DIY thing, as they say it's a cliche term but like you know you can make shit happen and you know with degeneration the clubs wouldn't book us so we took over loft parties and had our girlfriends bring in the beer and and even that kind of thing that travels with me now that even put labels that put out my records or we have a booking agent these official things there's always ways to go we got to figure it out and i think that that pma as the bad brains would sing about the positive mental attitude or i had some friend when i was growing up and we had no money and we can always say there's ways there's ways and you know we'd find a way we'd go to the record companies and pretend we we'd like you know we'd, we'd give have them give us records then we'd sell them on st mark's place or we you know find different ways to like make stuff happen and uh you have to kind of manifest it and visualize it in some way without sounding too uh spiritual here but um i think that it's also passion if you love what you're doing people ask me well you go play what's advice for my friend or my kid or me in a band i'm like just play with people you like play from your heart and don't think about anything else just be real to it be true to yourself and people will feel that people want to be inside something that's infectious if you're having fun it's like you see the beastie boys when we used to see them on an award show and they're jumping around and or in a video and you're like well i want to be in on that joke you know like these guys are have they know something they're having fun i want to be part of that you know so um one last subject i wanted to touch on it is also about new york i guess i noticed a running theme in a lot of your lyrics definitely a theme in the lyrics of of your new single is is people watching and i I feel like that is a big part of who you are as an artist new york has a very 
singular thing about it where it's so big and there's so many people, you can disappear in it, even if you're some someone of a certain notoriety. I mean, agree or, or disagree, that's a big part of the experience, it seems, of your experience of the city as being a fly on the wall. Absolutely. You know, it's coffee shops or old man bars or even in a subway platform or, you know, hearing bits of conversations or just seeing how people are, are dealing, you know. And I can't write about something unless I can see part of myself in them, even if it's some horrible person, some part of the humanity. But, yeah, I think it's a great place to, like I said, watch the movie, be a voyeur. I go to other neighborhoods. Like I said, walking, there's something about a forward motion, just walking around and right. overhearing things. There's it, a lot to take in. And, and in a lot of places, but New York does have that. It's compact and there's, there's always something going on. And so I find myself, you know, scribbling in my phone and coming up with ideas. And, um, you know, I think that it's also something that was exciting to me as a kid, like to get away from a quiet town where people judged you for what you wore and you got beat up if you didn't like the right records and you were this, a junkie, a fag, or, you know. What uh, were the records you were supposed to like out of curiosity? Well, I think that when I was into Kiss, we got beat up by the kids that liked Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, and they'd say, Kiss sucks. And, you know, I was at that age where Kiss was like, I was hooked. But mm. the kids that were older that were, you know, had been listening to heavy rock had different feelings. But when I got into punk rock, this was before, you know, it was a different time. It wasn't the commercialized world of, you know, colored hair at the mall and to- Hot Topic and, you know, Brazilians and piercings and mohawks for grandmothers. It was, uh, you know, they beat you up. Everybody hated you if you liked punk back then. They figured because of Sid Vicious, you killed your girlfriend or your, you know, whatever it was. Um, and then you go into the city. It was like, I, there was a lot of weird, like homophobia and just ignorance. And I think that's changed in some ways. I think there's still plenty of it beyond in this country. But as far as in music, they've mixed a lot of things. I mean, white people buy more hip hop records than probably black people. And, you know, in some ways, I mean, from my experience when I've DJed or whatever, it's like people have been into different things and not, um, it, it's just like they're, they'll take a mix of a lot of stuff. Back in the old days, people might fight. And it's ignorant and stupid to fight, but they were so passionate. Mods and rockers, I'll fight you for this. And yeah. now it's like, well, you like music. What do you like? I like everything you know mm-hmm. it's like you know we knew what we liked we knew who produced the record we knew what you know where the boots that the guy wore were from <laughs> well think about new york i love somebody pointed this out to me one time you think about pick a year late 70s new york and you've got got hip-hop being born mm. in the bronx and yeah. you've got studio 54 the absolute epicenter of the disco universe in midtown and you've got punk it's happening in england but the ramones are down in cbg that's the same city at the same time and at that point you had to pick a camp. Yeah. You weren't going to go from Studio 54 and then dip up to go watch the Sugar Hill Gang No, you were in one camp. And, yeah. you know, I used to ride the trains with all kinds of B-boys and hip-hop guys. And it wasn't like now where everybody likes, you know, it wasn't like a Run DMC Aerosmith video. It was like <laughs> there was tension and there was, you know, so it affected me. when the But artists that were brave and smart like Blondie and The Clash and even The Stones were able to break those barriers and, and be open. Blondie went up there and hung out with, you know, these artists and went to hip-hop clubs in the Bronx and that incorporated Freddy, that. And, yeah. yeah. So that that was way ahead, but I was still at that ground of 14 years old, and I needed to to have my walls protect me with you know Marshall Stack bar chord guitars and political angry stuff. But uh, there's a book be- called uh, I think Will Herms is his name. Love goes to a building on fire, 
which is about certain nights in New York and what's going on in the four different worlds. Like, what's happening this night in the Bronx? Okay, same night, CBGBs. Uh-huh. Same night at the Garden. What's going on? See, like, you know, Kiss at the Garden. Some, you know, uh, Grandma, uh, you know, Africa Bombada doing something in the Bronx. And at CBGBs, The Talking Heads. And at JFK, Johnny Thunders lands. And it's, like, set up like this, this book. Uh-huh. It's, I think that's a Talking Heads song title, Love Goes to a Building on Fire. But that book encompasses that thing of that mix. And uh, Instead so, of Sam hanging over the whole yeah, yeah, there you go. And, and the Yankees and <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Breslin. And, you know, but uh, I don't want to get, yeah, we're getting so New York. But the Spike Lee film was a lot like that, except I didn't love it, but I, I cried at the end because it is a certain New York that I that doesn't exist. But the Summer of Sam. Yes. Yeah, it kind of has that. I was and, born during that blackout. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> when that happened in the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the energy <laughs> passing out, coming through. Uh, well, I thanks. was born in a blackout. That's, that's a good right. album title. I'll be your book title. I'll have to keep that in mind. Uh, thanks for coming by. I'm so glad I've been following you for years. I'm very happy to finally get a chance to chat with you a bit. Thanks for having me, man. The uh, Your new album is produced by Lucinda Williams. It's called Sunset Kids. It is out on August 30th, and there's a great big tour that is going to follow that. People can follow you on Twitter at Jesse underscore Malin. Yeah. All right. Thanks, buddy. Cool. You're listening to The Tully Show. Keep it here. More to come on Faction Talk. Welcome back to The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. We uh, wrapped up a little bit ahead of schedule with Jesse Malin, so I figured out with uh, what remains of the show, I would hang out with you all one-on-one. It's crazy getting to uh, sit down and talk to that guy after following him for for all these years. I went to go see his band, um, Degeneration, where we were talking about a whole bunch during that interview back in New York, back during my teen years. I started thinking about one of those shows I went to and decided not to bring it up because... It's just the stupidest thing ever. I remember going to a D-Gen show. Me and people know Brian Cullen from here on SiriusXM and a bunch of our friends went. And I don't remember if we were drinking or not at the at the venue. Might have been CBGB's. I don't think it was. It was not entirely uncommon for us to be able to purchase like alcoholic beverages in New York City at the age of 16. It was a really crazy thing that happened, actually. I uh, I went to high school in New York, commuting over from New Jersey, and this was uh, the end of the dark days of the stuff that, you know, they talked about in, like, Urban Cowboy and, you know, Times Square being a total shithole. And it was just an understood thing. Even at my high school, if you said the name of a of a bar, this one particular bar, there were many, but one in particular, everybody knew that what you were making reference to was the place that both teachers and high school sophomores occasionally could be found knocking back a couple beers. Um, and uh, that, that was the New York that I grew up in, and people are familiar with Rudy Giuliani, and Rudy Giuliani made his bones as a district attorney, but also as the mayor of New York, this whole thing with police commissioner Bill Bratton, right, the, the broken windows thing, which was essentially declare like a mild, low-key police state, clean the place up, you know, all of us left-wing hippies will, you know, you know, hold rallies and call him a Nazi. But in the end, we'll turn the the island of Manhattan into one giant suburban mall and real estate prices will go up and everybody will be happy. That was the idea, right? So Giuliani came along when I was still a teenager. I remember there were places that I would go after Rudy Giuliani became the mayor of New York and I would present my laughable fake ID. There was this place in Times Square that uh, we all went to. It was called Playland. It was a big arcade, and it was a place that sold 
fake IDs for entertainment purposes only, and they weren't trying to be real or good. It weren't they weren't driver's licenses. These were, you know, say what college you went to, pick a color, take your picture, you know, pick your fake name. I'm a you know 27 year old uh, senior at Harvard, whatever. And it was just this thing. There were plenty of bars that make no mistake. There were plenty of bars in New York where you had to be 21 to drink, but there was a small number, five or 10% of them, where you could be anybody just about in drink, but you had to produce some sort of fake ID. I don't really know why, looking back, that was a thing, this plausible deniability. If the police ever were to raid and there was a bunch of children drinking Jägermeister, <laughs> I don't know, dude. They've all got IDs. You check them out. They look pretty good to me. But that was just the way the system evolved and um, the way it was, and everybody understood it. I can remember one time at this one particular bar I mentioned where we all used to drink in my high school over uh, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, it was it was like three deep at the bar because we're right by the St. Patrick's Day parade on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And a friend of mine noticed that he's three deep and two deep is a uniformed police officer of the NYPD and the police officer turns backwards looks at him pauses and says what can I get you this is the New York that we grew up in um, and then Giuliani came along and I'd go to these same bars and I'd hand him my stupid Harvard ID and they'd be like this is fake and I'm like it was fake four years ago when I was 12 and you were serving me then but that was this that was what the city became the city that I knew as a teenager when I was for my high school years was a place where you could get away with shit. And anyway, I went to a degeneration show and we were all very, very drunk, but I was by far the drunkest of my friends because they were all at least standing. I remember there were like some like bleacher seating along the walls. Where was I? Did I dream this? I think I was a really major alcoholic when I was a teenager. And I just remember I found, uh, like a, this little hole in not a literal hole, but like a cocoon somewhere by these bleachers where if I laid on the floor in a ball, I was like not going to vomit. And I would do that for a couple songs and I'd be like, I'm good. I'm not going to vomit. And then I'd stand up and I'd be like, oh, that's why I was down back in that ball again. And that was the whole, that was the whole story. That's why I didn't bring that up to Jesse Malin just now. And I'm not really sure why I'm bringing it up to you, to you now. I went to their show and I got so drunk. I couldn't, I couldn't stand. But um, now that I am a parent, like shit it's really starting to hit home that i used to court death on like a i wouldn't say daily but uh pretty much every weekend i would say i was i was a i was a a part-time accidental alcoholic daredevil and i have a feeling most people listening to this can relate to that and i don't know how my parents just like of course they were concerned about me uh, I can remember one time I actually called my mom and I, 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 my story was always when I went over to Manhattan that, you know, we're just hanging out, we're just walking around, whatever. And I don't remember what gave me the courage to do this. It was probably alcohol, ironically enough. But uh, I called my mom just to check in. I was supposed to do that every couple of hours and um, at a really late curfew because I had to travel back from the city. So nobody could make you could make me come home at 10. That meant getting on a bus at nine. Can't do that. Mom and dad Everyone will think I'm lame. So they made it 11 and they fell asleep at 1030 and I could stay out all night. But I remember calling my mom and saying uh, she's like, what are you up to? And I was like, no, mom, um, I'm at a bar. I just stepped outside to tell you about a bar. And she was like, thank you. Thank God. I made me so nervous just thinking about you wandering the streets of New York. I'm happy to know you're somewhere. And I give my mom credit for being uh, for being real. That was a realistic way of looking at it. Um, I don't think that I'm prepared to live in a world where um, I'm just going to sit home for, 
I don't know, six years, eight years, and not know what my children are up to, but assume, oh my God, my kids are really far apart. As soon as one is out of the danger danger zone, the next one will enter it. Okay, so I don't know if I'm prepared to spend 15 years sitting at home on Friday, Saturday nights, and you know the odd wild weekday. Um, wondering just what my child is up to. I guess the good thing is is now they have Uber. They won't be they won't be drunk driving. They'll be drunk Ubering. This is progress. All right, I'm gonna go. This has been the show. Next, thanks again to Jesse Malin. Next week, one of your favorite guests who was here very very recently will be making a return, and I'm very excited about the show. He and I. We'll be uh, we'll be doing for you then. I'll see you then. This is the Tully Show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>